Podo. Welcome to the Ned Lard Radio Hour. I'm Nick Hilton. Welcome. Here in the UK, it's starting to feel a little bit Christmassy. Fairy light displays twinkle on regional high streets. Little kids try on the elf costumes that they're going to wear for three straight weeks. And shops and restaurants put out posters calling for extra labour. Want to be a Christmas helper at the supermarket? Well... They're offering £11.50 an hour and 15% off your groceries. Seasonal work is all fine and good, but the current labour market is a weird place. I'm no economist, and I appreciate that actual economists would look at the current employment state in most of the West and be largely unconcerned. Here in the UK, after all, we seem to have a dearth of available workers to fill these low-level jobs. This is blamed by those of a liberal persuasion on the fallout of the Brexit vote. I imagine that there is a similar analysis raised in the US after the tightening of immigration from Central and South America. From the right, though, it's blamed on a cushy sense of entitlement among young Brits. They come to the same point, really. We've come to expect that low-paid, low-status jobs in our society will be done by immigrants. But there is something else, I suspect, because... Hospitality and retail seem to be slashing worker numbers with a zeal that would please Elon Musk. I went to Sainsbury's twice this past week, not to brag. It's a big Sainsbury's, a Sainsbury's of truly American proportions. On both occasions, there was one manned checkout running. 20 or 30 self-checkouts, with a single staff member buzzing around offering ID approvals on bottles of Baileys or suspicious quantities of chef's knives but only one checkout for actual people with full trolley loads of produce. And I had a similar experience in a major high street coffee shop. Its name is French for ready to eat, not to give it it away too much. Uh, Where they only had one employee taking orders and, and making the coffee. She was so frazzled by this back and forth, the queue so long and unconquerable, that I felt sorry for her. All the same, the pity was tempered when I had to abandon the drink I'd ordered and paid for, in order to run for my train. When I raised this question about understaffing on Twitter recently, I got a reply from someone saying that they had set off the alarm in Boots the other day and had to go hunting for someone to check the tags. She, the worker, said, shoplifting is such a problem. Not surprised given how easy it is. Boots is, for reference, Britain's foremost beauty and pharmacy retailer. It's a strange world, and it's getting stranger. There's no doubting that the advent of AI is already having a job's impact particularly in the worlds of tech, services, and the creative industries. Here in merry audio land, the tools now being regularly deployed by podcasters, AI restoration and enhancement, AI transcription and show noting, AI de-umming and de-ahring, are all taking material work away from the human jobs market. That might be a good thing. It might keep the price of content reasonable in a lukewarm economic climate, but it might also be a way of cutting costs in an already thrifty world. The shop floor, which looks empty right now, ought to be resilient. It ought to be beyond the reach of AI capabilities for the next decade or two. Sure, we've got a few of those freaky Amazon stores where you just walk out with your basket, but there's little evidence of them catching on, at scale, here in the UK at least. Though, do write in if you're based in San Francisco or wherever and can feel the robot supermarket taking over. It feels hard to know what the low-wage work of the future will look like. 
Jobs that compete directly with the capabilities of computers are obviously at risk. That ought to drive up the competitiveness of jobs like retail and hospitality, which, for the time being, are unstealable. Being a data analyst, for example, is currently a very respectable middle-class profession, but one that must have the little red dot of artificial intelligence's sniper rifle trained squarely on its chest. Is it possible that all these well-paid jobs in IT, which has created a generation of suburban income stability, are about to implode? Jathan Sadowski, my guest today, is an academic, and our conversation is going to sound a bit academic. He's a senior fellow at the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, University in Melbourne. He has also authored a book called, worryingly, Too Smart, How Digital Capitalism is Extracting Data, Controlling Our Lives and Taking Over the World, and co-hosts a much more successful than this one, weekly podcast called This Machine Kills. I recorded this interview with Jathan back in the summer, so if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll note that my hair is still shaved, whereas now it's long and lush like you, Grant. But that means that I'm not going to be discussing Christmas shopping, nor am I going to be asking him for advice on whether I should, you know, pick up a couple of extra weeks of work as a gift wrapper at Waterstones. And here's a top Christmas tip. Books are very easy to wrap and therefore make excellent presents, even if people don't want them. But what we are going to be talking about is the history of Luddism as a labour movement. To some extent, everything that I've been doing with this podcast over the past couple of months and into the new year has been in service of that question. How can we prevent the current changes to the world of work penalising the poorest in our society? I sent this question over to Ned, who is predictably having a very busy festive period and took an age to respond, hence why this episode is coming out late. Here's what they had to say. Sorry for slow reply, Nick. Been snowed under. Almost no pun intended. The only proactive decision that tech investors are responding to in this era that we might call the late pre-artificial worker era is cutting. Human capital is the first thing to be cut. Cut, cut, cut. The question is coming very soon about whether rather than cutting they can replace. Optimise outputs while reducing costs. This should be a very profound worry. It will start in Silicon Valley, Zurich, Shenzhen and Zhongguancun But it will be a growing concern among all employers. Increasingly, revenue is a project that requires patience. Reducing costs creates an immediate discernible change. There is no worker who should be complacent right now. Anyhow, with that warning ringing in your ears, here's Jathan. I'm in Melbourne, Australia, and it is 6.25 p.m. 6.25 p.m. Well, have you had a nice day? This is, you're speaking to me from the future, so how's it (laughs) been? That's right. I've had a I've had a nice day, a very long day. It is winter here, so it's it's quite chilly. Um, although we did get a little bit of sun, but it's very much a Melbourne winter, which means you know, cloudy, gray, uh, a light mist in the air at all times. Okay, well, look from the future. Let's go back to the past, and if you explain to me your area of research but also maybe segue without me asking into a bit of an explanation of the history of Luddism, because I know you're an expert in this field. Sure. So my work focuses on the political economy of technology. So what that really means is, you know, understanding technology as itself a, not only a social, but a political phenomenon, as something that is the result of 
specific values and preferences and ideals that are materialized in concrete form in the technologies that structure our lives and our society. Um, and understanding that as well is often driven by very economic uh, goals around profit or efficiency and optimization, um, these kinds of things, right? And so that's that's my view on technology at all times. Um, but I'm I'm far from the only person who uh, views it that way. In fact, there is very much a long history of understanding technology as something that is the result of political and economic forces acting on people and society. Although I think that understanding of it has for a long time been somewhat lost in our, mm -hmm. in our discourses around technology. And then the kind of the Ur example of this, I guess, is then is the, is the Luddites here in, uh, in my home country. Can you kind of talk us through what that moment back at the start of, I guess, the Industrial Revolution looked like and kind of the impact it, it, it had and why it still inspires people like both of us um, to the present day? So the Luddites, right, we're talking about the, you know, very early 1800s, around 1811 or so is the the first Luddite riots. Um, and they were really these, you know, the, the beginning of the industrial age. And so you have the sudden growth of, you know, the dark satanic mills, right? These factories that are filled with machinery uh, that are driven by capital and these kind of relatively still new and growing ideals around capitalism and profit and the creation of things at mass scales rather than these more kind of local artisanal um, crafts uh, that, that people were really used to, right? And so hmm. the Luddites then were originally um, factory workers, specifically in textile mills. Uh, and, you know, they they were on the front lines of industrialization in a lot of ways, both at, at you know, temporally at the time period, but also very physically in terms of they were in the factories, they were working the machines, they were the the kind of you know the test bed of a lot of industrial capital at that time how can we speed up the pace of work how can we make things faster and cheaper um, and how can we do it with by getting more labor out of people and paying them less money for that labor right and so this is really the the conditions in which the luddites um, arise and so when you talk about Luddism. You talk about it then. You talk about neo-Luddism going into the into the modern era. You're talking about a relationship between technology and and labor. Is that right? That's right. I I always understand and I advocate that we must all understand the Luddites as first and foremost a labor movement, right? It you know we we think of it as this kind of group that were technophobic or primitivist in some ways, that they were afraid of progress, afraid of innovation. Um, and that manifest in this kind of just just wanton rage of picking up a hammer and swinging it at the, the nearest hunk of metal and wood that they could find. But that's far from the case, right? The, the Luddites were uh, a labor movement. They were always about 
securing their rights, securing their autonomy, securing the the safety uh, and security of their communities and their families. And for them, it wasn't as well that they they weren't afraid of the technology, nor did they think that the technology was replacing them, right? Which is often something we hear now when we think of labor and technology. It's about automation, replacing workers, and so on. They weren't even afraid of that. Instead, what they knew was that the machinery was the pointy end of the boss, right? The machinery was a representative of the boss in the sense that uh, the the factories, the machines that they were using and that they are famous for smashing uh, were the things that were immiserating their lives in a really direct way, making their work more dangerous, making their work faster, denigrating the quality of their work uh, and, and doing so at the because it was the uh, the values of the capitalist, right? And so when they were swinging their hammers, they weren't swinging it at technology um, in, a, in an abstract way. They were swinging it at capital, at the bosses, at the in, at the beginnings of industrial capitalism. That was the real target of their ire, um, because they recognized as well that capitalism is a system that has an uh, inherent antagonism between labor and capital, between the workers and bosses. And they understand that technology is not something neutral. And when that technology is created by capital, then it's going to instantiate the values, materialize the values of capital. And and so they they understood technology as a a kind of a battlefield, as a battlefront for this class Mm. struggle and this class antagonism. Now I'm sat here wearing, you know, two pound tube socks and a t-shirt that I was given as a kind of free giveaway. So I think it's fair to say probably that capitalism in the battlefield of the textiles industry in the um, in the early 19th century in England, I think it's fair to say capitalism won the day there. Did the Luddism persevere? Did the movement keep a foothold? Are there any battles that Luddism has won? Or is are we just living in a sort of continual fail state where capitalism always wins out in the end? Well, you're right. I mean, capitalism did did win. I mean, the 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 legacy of Luddism is in some way a legacy of of loss, um, but not for want of trying, nor for want of popularity. The the Luddites were hugely successful in terms of their their cultural image at that time. Right, you had uh, people like Lord Byron giving you know, writing odes to the Luddites, giving really moving speeches at Parliament, you know, trying to sway the the government to the plight of the Luddites. But successfully, um, the, the, the populace, the people were on the side of the Luddites. They were not saying, who are these people that are standing in the way of innovation and progress? They understood as well what was at stake. But it is true that capital won, and capital won in large part because of the state, because of the government. This was one of the first instances of the government sending the military in to suppress worker riots on behalf of capitalist interest, on behalf of factory owners. They made uh, frame breaking or machine breaking a treasonous offense punishable by hanging. And this was a very early battlefield as well, 
where you see the the interest of capital and the state joining together. Um, and, and this is also really interesting because this is also the time period at which you have Bonaparte, right? Kind of Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, going across Europe, conquering, threatening uh, Britain, right? Uh, and instead of sending the military off to defend against um, Bonaparte, uh, Napoleon, they instead send the military to the north to suppress the workers, right? And so it really shows you where the state's real interests were at that time. Mm. And it was not with the factory workers, but the factory owners. This is a real, um, this is what we call a hospital pass, um, a sort of question you'd be asked about when you were up 15 um, in a sort of subjunctive history way. But um, but the Industrial Revolution, I, I guess at the time felt very bad, just for, just for lots of reasons, um, introduced pollution to the world, introduced all of these kind of supply chains that would, would come to be seen as very problematic, but equally it solved a lot of problems of the pre-industrial era. Do you look back and think to yourself, look, it's like a, just an unequivocal negative, the move from an agrarian society to an industrial society, or it, do, do you take a more tempered view or do you say ultimately this was a change that had to eventually happen? We, it was inevitable that humanity would industrialize once it had the capacity and, you know, it's happened as smoothly as possible to get to the present day where we are now. I mean, it's a, it's a giant question, but I, I, I love it. It's as a horrible a question. question. <laughs> um, but I love it as a question because I do think it also actually reveals a lot in terms of, you know, if we're talking about technology and the kind of critical reaction to technology, that is also requires, I think, talking about things like the means of production, the forces of production. And that's what you're really talking about here. You're talking about different, you know, uh, economic uh, material conditions, different forces of production and means of production in society and the societies that spring up around them. Right. And that's that is what urbanization was. Urbanization and industrialization came hand in hand because urbanization was a direct result of the rise of industrial capital. You needed to um, create a proletariat, right? If we want to use the Marxist terminology, or rather you needed to create, as E.P. Thompson put it, the historian, an English working class, um, which meant creating an urban working class of people who were packed together and really tight spaces, close to the factories, creating uh, a highly specialized form of division of labor, but also creating what uh, economists call a large reserve army of labor, right? A lot of people who are unemployed or underemployed, um, who can be cycled in and out of employment as other as people die, as they are fired, as they, for whatever reason, uh, you know, cycle out of the factory. Um, and so that way you have this constant churn of fresh labor for capital to extract and exploit a surplus from. And so that means then that you have uh, a move between agrarian societies and urban societies, between uh, uh, feudal societies and capitalist societies, between uh, pre-industrial societies and industrial societies. Right, you have this move that doesn't happen in a um, a, a predetermined way. 
It ha- mm-hmm. But it happens in a really specific way, right? Like urbanization could have happened in radically different ways if that urbanization was not driven by the needs of industrial capital, right? You could have cities that were built very differently, that looked very differently, um, that you you could at the same time as well have uh, something very different than the creation of an industrial working class out of an agrarian peasantry. Um, you could have had some other form of class or from, uh, some other form of subjectivity uh, that come out of it, right? But instead, it is true. It's it's what we got, um, but we didn't get it because there was because it was predetermined by fate, or there is only one way for it to happen. We got it because specific conditions came together, specific interest won out in the end. And here it's, I would argue, the interest of capital um, became the kind of organizing force around not just production, but what economists call social reproduction, right? The the kind of the everyday life, um, our social relationships, family relationships, the way that we sustain ourselves every day and the way that we reproduce ourselves um, into the next generation. And all that is organized around um, doing so for the purposes of creating labor for capital, right? And and I, I think in a, uh, a, a, if we zoom that out or talk about in terms of technology, I think it also reveals a lot where there's no linear progression of technologies. Um, And this is something that the Luddites really understood, right? The historian um, David Noble famously said that the the Luddites were one of the um, last people to understand technology in the present tense, right? To understand it not as something that might happen in the future, but as something that has immediate material consequences for us right now. And I think this mm-hmm. is really important in terms of you know, artificial intelligence, where a lot of the skepticism or the discourses around the, the critique or fear of it is very much cast in this like far future of existential risk, right? But it's a it's a I think an inherently anti-materialist way of understanding technology, which to me makes it very problematic because it doesn't understand it as a thing that emerged in a specific time because of specific conditions and has very specific immediate consequences. It just kind of understands technology as this like abstract thing, as this abstract force that happens to us. Um, and that's what requ- that's why the Luddites picked up their hammers, right? Because they said, well, I'm tired of this happening to me. I want to have a decision about how this works, how I work with it and what it does. You know, it's really saying technology should be subject to democratic decision-making rather than an authoritarian top-down um, decisions about what happens to us. And and so I, for all of this for me is understanding that there's always contingency, but that contingency is always in some way structured by broader kind of social, political, and economic conditions, right? And out of that comes the technologies or the forms of society or whatever it is that we have. Okay, well, well, from that impulse, we're now in a moment where we're seeing, at least in this country, where I guess the, the union movement has, has traditionally, and I guess to a large part, has an impact, a long-term impact of the Luddite movement. The union movement has been very strong in the UK. We're seeing a lot of... Uh, industrial action against new technology and, and and even in the US you know you see the the 
actors and writers going on strike and a large part of their kind of demands or the, their concerns about the use of AI doing them out of background work and and that sort of thing you know but here in the UK every day there's another you know at the moment we're debating whether train ticket offices should be closed and replaced solely by machines and um, that's leading to that's going to be a huge wedge issue at the at the next election so are we seeing a movement of whether you call it neo-luddism or whether you just see it as the same sort of impulse that sort of as you describe it a present tense response to technology saying this is the impact that technology is having right now these are the questions that it is trying to answer and there may be the wrong questions or they're the right answers to the wrong questions or they're the right answers that have just bad side effects (laughs) are we in a moment where you think there's a real chance that workers could smash their own spinning jennies (laughs) <laughs> well, I do think that we are absolutely in a in a kind of a new wave of neo luddism. That that's for sure. I think a lot of people are coming to it in various ways. But also, I know just in conversations I have, in the writing I do, and the speaking I do about luddism, anytime I ever describe what the luddites actually were, what they believed, and how it's relevant for us today. Almost always people shake their hands and say, oh, that, okay, I didn't know that. I thought the Luddites were, you know, people who wanted to live in caves without, uh, you know, uh, modern luxuries. I didn't realize it was actually a, a labor movement about the democratic control over technology. And they shake their head and say, that actually sounds really great, you know? And, and so, and I think that people come to this uh, realization because of, what we see happening, the ways that we see technology being used that are so clearly against our interest, or at least not for our interest, right? They are for somebody else's interest or for somebody else's values to um, benefit somebody else who is not us, right? So when we talk about taking away um, the, the ticket offices, well, why are we doing that? Is that going to benefit me in some way? Is it going to benefit people who rely on the ticket offices? Say, you know, people with disabilities who want to travel on the train, for example, or older people who may not have access or just that's the only way that they know how to do things, right? Like, you know, is that benefiting them? I think the answer is clearly no. So who is it benefiting, right? And why is the technology being the the alibi here for some other um, political or economic force, right? Why is the technology being blamed for things that you are clearly the one doing, right? And I think people are really seeing that where the the, the technologies are no longer these kind of magical things that drop into our lives at every, you know, Apple launch event or something like that, right? Like they are these things that we see being weaponized in really clear ways for interests that are clearly not ours. And oftentimes I think clearly against our own interest. Um, Why is it that the, why would we, why why, why do the, the Hollywood studios want to, you know, capture uh, actors' voices, do full emotion capture of them, do full body scans, um, and then also use ChatGPT to write scripts. Is that because it's going to produce better, more creative, more beautiful uh, movies and TVs? I mean, clearly no, right? Because the uh, the CEOs of these studios are getting hundreds of millions of dollars in salary every single year, right? So, uh, and and so I think again, it's like 
every every way every every time we turn around we see some technology being used or being blamed for some reason that so clearly seems anti-social anti-human anti our interest uh and and i think that causes people to not only look at the technology critically but look at the people building designing using and blaming the technology and saying what role do you have in this right and that to me is really establishing the conditions for this kind of this resurgence of Luddism. Now, I think it's a the question of what that actually looks like in, as a material action, you know, I think is is wide open. I don't think it's it's going to be, you know, picking up hammers and smashing them, but simply because we live in a world that is far more complex than the industrial world, right? Um, where the technologies are not these like, wholly contained things that exist in yeah. specific spaces like a factory and, right and it didn't work so we, we've got one evidence that of a specific action that has did not arrest the momentum of capitalism so we should probably try a different pathway next that time. that's right that's right i mean these we're talking about technologies that are massive uh dispersed and decentralized complex systems not not you know thermodynamic thermomechanical machinery and you're right it didn't work and it didn't work uh because of the some reason it would not work today because the the state uh, combined with the uh in the might of the state combined with the interest of capital would not allow it to work right would not allow um change to actually happen in that way and so it does raise a question well how does change happen then i think the mass union movements we see are certainly a way where that is a is how change happens um i think you know uh policy decisions around you know looking very critically at ai you know these are ways they happen right in other words they have to happen in these really collective ways i think it goes back to the original luddite movement as well which is that it was a not only a labor movement, but a movement of collective action and solidarity across people who were dealing with and grappling with the same forms of immiseration, right? And that's what it requires today is understanding that this is a, a collective action problem. It requires social solidarity, social support. Um, and, and that's the only way that we can actually you know, face up to these really big um, problems that are not fundamentally technological, they are fundamentally political economic problems. The Nedlard Radio Hour is a Porto podcast written and presented by me, Nick Hilton. We'll be off for Christmas in a couple of weeks, but, you know, top two or three episodes before then, something like that. The theme music is Internet Song by Apes of the State, used with their generous permission, and the artwork is by Tom Humberston. For socials, go to nedludlives.com. And just a reminder, you can watch videos of all of this on YouTube. Currently, I think I have three subscribers, something like that, so that could not be less worth my time at present. But it's there, it's an option for you. Anyhow, enjoy your day and spread the word. You tried pot, he said he didn't, and then he is a liar. Bet your mom when she was passed out on the floor at a party, and that's why it all let you out.